Can you prove uh, that you read the Bible? Name four books. <laughs> John. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. I know what you're thinking. What a lame joke, and you told that joke last week. Well, you know what? That's true. I did. It's because it's a dad joke, and dad jokes never grow old, right? I know. Leah's rolling her eyes. saying, That's the awesome thing. They just get better with time, right? right. They're funny. I think so. They're, I love dad jokes. They're witty. They're usually, you know, clean and wholesome, and they may be silly sometimes, but they're often told by a dad. That's why I call them dad jokes. And they, a lot of times, dad jokes come from a place of love, right? Not really putting anybody down, just trying to be goofy. A loving father can speak truth and love in a person's life like no one else. That is the tone and tenor of the book of 1 John. It's written by the Apostle John. It is no longer... Uh, a young, starry-eyed follower of Jesus. We just got done preaching through the book of John, and when it tells the story of Jesus, but from John when he was young, and, and he had a nickname, him and his brother, called the Sons of Thunder. Well, now he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters of John, to churches, and in these letters he's referred to as the Elder. Now, some people think it was written by a different John, you know, like... John, who was called John the Elder in one of the first churches. I, I have of the belief that it was written by the same guy, but it's just now he's older. He's a lot later in life. He's probably in his upper 80s. So you, you're not that old. <laughs> not at all. You know, 74, that's nothing, you know. John was probably in his upper 80s. And that's why he begins this chapter, and I want to start with that because he begins chapter 2 by saying, My little children... My little children, there's this pastoral tone to these letters that is felt by his readers that are reading this letter. And it it's, should be felt by us today as well because there's some strong language that we're going to get into here in a minute. There's some direct commands, but also we see a lot of love behind his words here. And I hope that when someone comes to you in love, in loving kindness with a word of correction, that you would be quick to listen because of the person who's talking to you. And that's John's letters here. That's what we have here. He's writing to Christian believers. Some false teachers had crept into this church. Actually, they had come from inside the church. And they had attempted to, to mix these cultural norms along with scripture teaching. And some of them had left. And John was trying to address some of these issues. And he was trying to address some of the issues where these leaders had left the church and they were pulling other people away and causing a lot of confusion, and, and uh, uh, people needed some assurance. They needed some, they needed some loving words, and they needed some strong words at the same time. So these letters, 1 John was written to Christians, writing them to encourage them in their faith and to maybe challenge them and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. So if I was to summarize today's message in one statement, I would say that true Christians, and this is the message he's trying to get across, true Christians are not sinless, but they should strive to sin less because they ha we have Christ as our advocate who died for our sins. So because we have Christ as our advocate who died for our sins, we're not sinless, but we should strive to sin less. So in verse 1, John indicates one of the purposes for writing the letter. He says, um, so that you will have, I'm writing these things, so that you may um, not sin, he says. 
Actually, the first one we talked about last week is if you have your Bible, you can look in 1 John 1, verse 3. He said, so that you may have fellowship with us. And then the second reason was in verse 4, is so that our joy may be complete. So those are two reasons for writing. And now he gives the third writing in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. So that, I'm writing these things, so that you may not sin. So all of those things, fellowship, joy, and not sinning, they all kind of go hand in hand in the purpose of John writing this letter. He wants his readers to demonstrate the reality of their conversion, demonstrating that they are in fellowship with God and his apostles, and part of that involves fighting sin. And all of that leads to their collective joy together. And that's why he has written these things. So these things, I think, when he says that in chapter 2, verse 1, it, it is all of the whole letter, but also he might be referring to those things that he just said in chapter 1, especially verses 5 through 10. Because he doesn't want people to misunderstand what he had just said. There are two possible misapprehensions about what John might be concerned about. Because he had just said in chapter 1 that you are all sinners. That everyone is a sinner. And so you might be thinking, people might be thinking, well, sin is a reality and it's impossible for me to live a sinless life. Then why bother? Why bother trying? If, sin, you know, if I sin, it's no big deal. God will forgive me. And that's kind of what he addressed in chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, John worries that some Christians will think that sin is just part of the Christian life. And so he doesn't want people to think that it's no big deal. That, that could be a problem. And the second pitfall that people might be thinking is, is, well, as a Christian, I have liberty, and I am no longer living under the law, so I can do whatever I want to do. If I sin then God will forgive me. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so don't fall into the pitfall by saying, well, you know what? I like to sin. God likes to forgive. Hey, what a great partnership we have. That is not the correct mindset that we have as Christians. A.W. Tozer, uh, he had this helpful illustration on this point. He said, when large manufacturing companies provide on-site clinics for their employees, that does not mean that the companies are encouraging accidents and illnesses, right? Just because we have a first aid station, just because we have an AED, doesn't mean we want people to have heart attacks, right? That's not what that means. And so this passage might be considered something of a, a spiritual clinic with caution. Watch out that you do not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So what John means in, in verse 1 here is, I am writing, writing these things so that you won't regard sin as an inevitable part of the Christian life. And so you won't presume on Christian liberty by thinking that sin is no big deal. That's what it, he's getting out right, right from the gate. So Christians are saved from sin, not to sin. That's why we are saved. So if you think about it, we live in this life now that we're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because we know that we are sinners, right? We know that we cannot reach sinless perfection here in this life, yet we are commanded to not sin. So the point is, our goal should be to live day by day without committing sin in thought or word or deed, but we know that we're striving, but it's going to be difficult in fact, it's impossible. But Christians ought to be people who sin less after they are saved. 
that we should sin less than we did before we were saved. So the trajectory of our lives should be toward holiness because we know that sin is, sin is a devastating thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. We know that it's sin that led Jesus to the cross. It was our sin. So we, we know that it's a big deal now. Whereas before we were Christians, we were unaware of the depth of our sin in our life. And how John is a, a realist here about sin. He knows that Christians do occasionally sin. That's why he used the word if here in verse 1. If anyone does sin, it's inevitable. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a short amount of time, if you're just new to following Christ, or if you've been a Christian for as long as you can remember from the time you were a small child. And it doesn't matter if you've never read the whole Bible or if you've been to Bible college or seminary. You know, we, we all are at the same spot. We all, and it doesn't matter how many sins you've done, it doesn't matter the multitude or how big they are, it doesn't matter the magnitude either about sin. Because we know that everyone struggles with sin. And there's no classifications either. There's no sins that are worse. You know, it's the, the Catholic Church divides sin into those unbiblical categories of mortal sins, those which bring eternal condemnation, and venial sins, those sins that are forgivable. But God doesn't break sin apart like that, does he? All sin leads to death. All sin leads to death. We can't think of other people's sins as being worse than our sins when it comes to our standing with God. And, you know, with the upcoming month of June, the upcoming, you know, so-called pride celebrations that are on the horizons, which celebrate certain sexual sin, we can't think that we are better than other people. We know that we are all sinners to one degree or another. But the difference is that as Christians, we know that all sin is against God and deserves punishment. But if we do sin, or I should say when we sin, we need to remember that we have an advocate to plead our case for us on our behalf. That word advocate mean, means one who comes alongside to help in a time of need. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was doing his final you know, extended teaching with his disciples in the upper room before his arrest, the upper room discourse in John chapters 15 through 17, where he talks about how he was going to send the Holy Spirit, he's going to send a helper, a counselor. He used that word advocate, who's going to come alongside and help you after Jesus is gone. One, just like Jesus, who's going to be here to help us in our Christian walk. So as a Christian, you really have two advocates, don't you? You have the, the Holy Spirit living inside of you to convict you of sin and to help you understand spiritual things and walk in newness of life. And you have an advocate in heaven, John says. Jesus Christ, who speaks to God on our behalf. As the author of Hebrews says, that we have a high priest in our advocate, Jesus, who always makes intercession for us. So he steps in and pleads our case for us. Or as 1 Timothy says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the best advocate or mediator that we could ever dream of. I mean, think about that. God became flesh and lived among us, a real human life. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet he was without sin. And he died on the cross for our sins as our substitute. No other advocate could claim that. 
I couldn't do that. I couldn't step in the, in the gap between you and a holy father because I am sinful. And no pope or bishop or preacher or Bible study leader or apostle or disciple or Virgin Mary, nobody could bridge that gap except for Jesus Christ because he was the sinless one. He's the only one who could stand before a holy God because he is holy. He was sinless. Only Jesus Christ, the righteous, the title that John gives him here in verse 1. He died and rose to life and ascended into heaven in his new glorified body. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, making intercession for us. And let me tell you a story I heard a long time ago that helps to illustrate this a little bit. There was a young man who got his driver's license when he was about 16 years old, and he was out driving for fun. We used to call it cruising. It's what we did back before we had cell phones and gas was cheap. <laughs> we would just go driving around, driving back and forth, seeing who was around, listening to music. Well, this kid got pulled over by the cops for going way too fast, and so fast that it wasn't just speeding it was reckless driving as well. So he had to go before a judge. And in the courtroom, the prosecutor said, your fine is $500, which was a lot of money back then. The kid didn't have that kind of money. And so the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? The young man said, well, judge, my mom said that I was born with a lead foot. So I couldn't help it. I naturally pushed the accelerator way too hard. You can't blame me. The judge replied, well, that might be the case, but... It doesn't excuse your behavior. Well, the young man said, it was an accident. I was just having a good time. I was singing along. I didn't really know the speed limit wasn't 85. <laughs> I didn't know, so you can't hold me accountable. Of course, the judge replies, yes, I can. It might have been an accident. You might not have known what the speed limit was, but ignorance is not a defense. That doesn't change the fact that you broke the law. Well, the young man didn't have anything else to say, so... The judge says, you are guilty. And the fine that you have to pay is $500. The kid was like, court's adjourned, the judge says. And then the judge comes off the bench, takes off his robe, pulls out his wallet, and gives the boy $500 to pay the fine because the young man on trial was his son. You see, in actuality, we are the ones on trial, not for speeding, but for cosmic treason, for rebelling against our Creator. And God is our judge. And in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of Christians, the one who accuses them before the throne of God day and night. And so when I sin, I imagine Satan rushing into the presence of God saying, this one is guilty. He broke your law, God, and you know the punishment is death. But praise the Lord that I have a defense attorney whose name is Jesus. And he says, yes, Father, he is guilty of that son, sin, but I went to the cross and died for him. And his faith in me means the atonement is applied to him. His sins are forgiven, and I put my robe of righteousness on him. He is covered in my blood. He is forgiven. And so there's nothing that the accuser can say that's going to stick because we are forgiven. When a Christian sins, now that person feels conviction and sorrow for sin. However, let me tell you this. Don't let that stop you from running to Christ for forgiveness. Because that's what John is saying here. Satan would love 
to, to remind you of your sin, to tell you that you're not forgiven, to drive you to despair. So we need to fight against that and remember that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who loves you unconditionally and who will forgive you because it says that he is the propitiation for our sins, it says in verse 2. Wait a second, what, is, what does that mean? It's like if you're reading this, you're like, all right, I, got an, I know what advocate means. And then John says he is the propitiation for our sins. You know, is John just trying to sound smart here? You know what I mean? Like, or is the English translation of our Bible, what is that word that we don't use in our normal everyday language that is in our scripture here? I think, why does John use such a big word here that it's hard to understand? I, I think what it is is that the English translators are trying to communicate a word, and it's really hard because this concept is really difficult. So the Christian Standard Bible or the New International Version might say sacrifice of atonement. In fact, that's how I learned it when I memorized this when I was a kid was a sacrifice of atonement instead of propitiation because the word means atoning sacrifice. It, the word propitiation means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. And the word is also used in Romans 3, 22 through 26. Can you put that up there? Romans 3, 22 through 26. It's where Paul tries to explain the same word, and instead of trying to like just read a dictionary definition for you, I thought, like, let's look how Paul explained it to the Roman church because it helps us to get a better understanding of what God was thinking and doing at the time whenever he sent Jesus Christ, what happened on the cross. It says, the righteousness of God, that's good, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he starts with this, like, we see in this passage that God is holy, right? It's where we started our worship service this morning, remembering who God is. First of all, God is holy, but we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. But God is just. So God's justice demands payment for sin. And that is why God, in his love, sent his love for sinners. He sent Jesus to this world. So it's at the cross where God's wrath, his love, his justice, and his holiness come together. So God's wrath was poured out in judgment upon Jesus who bore our sins on the cross as our substitute. So by his death on the cross, the, the, the wrath of God was satisfied when he punished Jesus for that. So when, G, when John says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he means the penalty for our sins has been removed and God's wrath has been propitiated. That is, that it's turned away. And now we, it's this great exchange that takes place. Now we receive his righteousness in exchange. So when he says that it's for the whole world, he doesn't mean that every person who's ever lived is now forgiven of all their sins, but instead it's for the whole world in the sense, like John 3.16, that any sinner in the whole world now can be totally forgiven of their sins. That's what he means there in verse 2. So these next few verses now, they give confidence to the believer 
And now it, it forces that fence walker to ask this, true, this, this tough question. Have I truly trusted in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? Have I truly trusted in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? And at the same time, it, it, he gives it confidence to those who, uh, who have. John provides this test of assurance that we are indeed in the family of God in verses 3 through 6. Verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So notice the word know appears four times there. By this we know, we have come to know him. Whoever knows, say, I know him. By this we know if we are in him. So God wants you to know something here. Your salvation is not a matter of guesswork. You should not be like, well, I don't know if I'm saved. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Don't go through your life thinking like, I'm not really sure if I'm a Christian or not. I'm not really sure if I'm saved or not. You don't have to worry and guess whether you're not or a true believer. God actually wants you to have assurance of your salvation. So the first no in verse 3 here, it's in the present tense in the Greek. The idea is it's a progressive knowledge gained by experience. The sense is that we are continually knowing that we know God. And the second no here is emphasizing that we come to know him in a real, genuine, complete way. Like we talk about having a relationship with God. When the Bible talks about knowing God, one of the senses is when we say, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's what, we, that's what he means when he says, do you know him? So when John says, by this, we know that we have come to know him, he then goes on to say, if we keep his commandments. So the word keep there is that continually regular obedience of doing what God wants us to do, doing God's commandments. And one of the ways that you know if you are a Christian is if you have that desire to obey. If you have no desire to obey God's commandments, then you're not a Christian. If you have no interest in doing what God says to do, that should be a red flag to you that you are not a true Christian. You are not a believer. Assurance of your salvation is unattainable without obedience to God's commands, including a desire to obey. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you uh, practice these qualities, you will never fail. So Peter stressed the same thing in his letter too. He said to confirm your calling and your election by following these, uh, by following these qualities. And then he actually had just listed the qualities right above that in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1. The qualities he had just listed, he said, having escaped from the corruption in the, that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every up effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with, God, with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, Peter says the same thing that we see in Galatians. This is the fruit of the Spirit. 
These are the things. So then what does Peter say? The very next verse, he says, Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Or you, are, you will never fall. So this is, you can't just say, I know him, if those qualities that Peter and, and Paul and John, we see all throughout Scripture, that these qualities are in your life and are growing in your life. You can't just say, I know him. You know, it, that reminds me of, of Buddy the Elf in that movie, The Elf. Remember? When it, whenever he finds out that Santa's coming to the store and he gets all excited, says, I know him, I know him, I know him. And then what does he find out? That's not really Santa. It's a fake. He says, you're not him. He says, yes, I am. If you're really Santa, then what song did I sing you on your birthday? Santa said, happy birthday. Oh, okay. And he said, but you, you, you're not him. I know you're not. You smell like beef and cheese. You don't even smell like Santa. And then he pulls off the, he pulls off the thing, right? And then all the kids scream. I mean, that's pretty much what John says here in verse 4. Minus the beef and cheese smell. <laughs> he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. He sits on a throne of lies. <laughs> That's what Buddy the Elf says. John says, I, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or made complete or brought to maturity. So whoever is keeping his words, whoever is in that, that constant habit of desiring to grow in Christ-likeness, desiring to become more like Christ, guarding his word, keeping his word, then that's a sign that you are in Christ, that you know the love of Christ. That's how we know that you love Christ, because you know you've already been loved by him, which John will get into in, in future weeks, but you desire to grow. You want to keep his commandments. You desire to hear his word and grow in his word. And through that process, he says, the love of God is being completed in you. It's being made complete in you. But, and then he ends by saying this, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, don't say one thing and do another thing. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. So with a loving tone here, a loving fatherly pastoral tone john is saying that don't say you love jesus today if you're not going to obey him if you do you're just lying to god don't say that you love jesus if you are deliberately living contrary to his principles and let me end with this reminder if you have repented of your sins if you have turned from your sins and are trusting in jesus alone for salvation then know this for certain that you are adopted into his family. Why would you want to deliberately disobey God's commandments when you've been brought into his family? You have everything that you need. It reminds me of a story of a young man who, um, where his father loved him a lot, gave him so much, gave him everything he'd ever need. And this young man now is an adult, and the young man just started stealing from his dad. And the father got very, very angry. Angry to the point of saying, like, I might call the cops on you because you stole from me. You, you stole from me. It's, it's, I gave you so much. I gave you everything. I, you're a part of my family. In fact, everything that I have is yours. 
If you wanted anything, I would have bought it for you. So why steal? Why steal from something that's already yours? Did you forget that you are part of the family? You see, sometimes I think that we think that God has these commandments because he doesn't want us to have any fun, right? Man, God just wants to limit my life. God doesn't even know. And in reality, God's like, you got it all. Like, I'm giving you everything. You just don't see that my way is the best way for you. It's not to make your life worse. It's actually to make your life better. Remember the story of the prodigal son? You know, the older son got mad when the younger son's party was going on, and he went outside the house, and the father goes outside the house and says, what's your deal? What's going on here? Why aren't you coming in and celebrating? And he says, you never even gave me a little goat to celebrate with my friends. And yet you throw a big party for this rebellious son of yours. And the father says, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. You already have everything you need. It's right there in front of you. And the most important thing is, is I am with you. The presence of God. That is an amazing gift. And that is a promise to you today. So don't go back to the sinful ways that God saved you from. It, they are destructive. They're killing you. So be, put those sins to death and live in the life that God has raised you to newness of life. So do you want to follow Christ? Realize this. When you get adopted into the family, like, you got it all. You got everything. So why chase the things of this world that are passing away? What good would it be if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Don't try to obey now in order to be forgiven. If you are forgiven, then obey. Obedience is the result of being forgiven. So God's commandments are not meant to make our life worse. They're meant to actually give us life. They're meant to give us life. And then if we do sin, if we do struggle, know this, that it's not like God is kicking you out of the family. Know that you have an advocate. We have an advocate. Jesus was just like us. And he died for us because he loves us. And in this life, we will never reach sinless perfection. But as we walk with Jesus, as we trust in the Holy Spirit to guide us, Lord willing, we will sin less as our love for God grows day by day.